I'll invite everyone to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Uh, It begins in Genesis, God as creator. And Exodus and Genesis are intimately connected together. We see God's story of creation in Genesis 1 and the origins of God's people. And then in Exodus, we see God's story of salvation and liberation. We're going to be in chapter 16 as we continue our walk through Exodus, and I'm going to read uh, not the whole chapter, I'm just going to read verses 2 to 5, and then verse 27 to 35 in Exodus 16, beginning in verse 2. God's people had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, God has parted the Red Sea, and then we pick up here in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Then picking up in verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one get out of, go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that, he may, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the word of God for the people of God. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, which we've mentioned is a story of salvation, a story of God's liberating work, liberation from slavery, of being under any other God but Yahweh, of Israel's God. And anytime we look to any other God more than God for freedom, we will be enslaved. But what does it look like for God's liberating work? to play out in our lives personally. We can read stories of God's salvation, story of God's liberation, but what does it have to do with today? How does God's liberating work play out into our lives on a personal level? And speaking of work on a personal level, I found that often things break. Things don't work as they should. And in our home, especially our Acura MDX. Uh, Megan's parents gave us, uh, a few years ago, graciously gave us this car, and we were really excited to have it. As our family increased in size with two boys, we needed a 
a larger vehicle to carry around stuff, and that's just what happens when you get kids. You get stuff. And uh, the car, and our car has all kinds of things in it. In fact, you could go into it right now, and you could probably survive in the wilderness. You'd find French fries and crackers and things just on the floor left for you personally. Uh, there's probably clothing and clothes you could wear, maybe a tent. There's definitely balls that you could play with. There's all kinds of things in our car you could, you could thrive with. Uh, there's plenty of space. But it has this habit of breaking. In fact, just two weeks ago, I don't even know if I've shared this with Megan yet. Sorry, babe. Um, I was moving our seat down, and the lever that you used to pull it down just broke off. It just broke. And not like you snap it back in, break, but just broke. And so I just placed it right on the floor in the car and haven't mentioned it until now. Just things breaking it. And not only do things break off, it breaks down all the time. Breaks down all the time. Most recently, we moved into our new home uh, about a month and a half ago. A lot of things in our home were breaking. Pipes weren't working. And then Megan calls with the news that the car is broken down again. And when I get that news, when Megan calls me up and she's a little stressed, the car's broken, what should we do? You know, some of you, when you hear that, you think, okay, the car's broken down. Let's fix it up. What do we need to do? Is this a battery problem? Do we need to take it into the shop? What must be done? I mean, this is a logical response when something breaks. For me, when I get that phone call, I don't start to think of solutions. I enter into this whole narrative of everything in life that breaks. I'm thinking, oh, here we are again. You know, it's the car, and one thing, it's the next. All of life is broken, you know, and I'm just down. I'm in the pits. I'm not thinking of what to do, how to fix it. I'm just living out, reciting this narrative of all the things that break. It's like I'm in a zombie movie. Uh, If you're familiar with zombies, they're just constantly chasing you. It's like bad things are all around the corner, uh, just constantly after you. And you might kill one. I don't know why we're calling about killing, talking about killing zombies, but you might get rid of one, and there's just another one right that comes up next. And life feels that way. You solve one problem, and there's just another one hiding in the bush to jump out and kill you the next day. I have this zombie narrative in life that bad things are just around the corner. Everything's going to break. Maybe you can relate with that. Maybe you can, you're experiencing that this morning. You're in the middle of something breaking, maybe something small, maybe something big. I think the Israelites could relate with that. Here they are. They've been freed from slavery in Egypt, 400 years of slavery. And their idea, their expectation is, okay, God is part of the sea. We're going to freedom. And he has this promised land for us. And here they are in the desert without food. Problems are just following them. And so in the midst of the brokenness of life, in the midst of the deserts we find ourselves in, where is God and what is he doing? This morning, those are the two questions we're going to look at. What is God doing in the desert? And in what ways does he offer care? Look at God's purpose in the wilderness and God's provision in the wilderness. Uh, First, considering God's purposes in the wilderness, in the deserts of life, when things break down. In verse 2, 
Uh, We're reminded of their context. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Here they are in the desert. In the desert, biological life cannot be sustained. Human life cannot be sustained. And, And we ask, why are they here? Why are they in the desert? Is it just random? It's not. Actually, God's been leading them. God has been a pillar in the cloud, and he's led them to the wilderness. You would think that God would instantly bring them from slavery to the promised land, but here he he has brought them to the wilderness for, for as we see, 40 years. And we're reminded, maybe even a little shocked to see and hear that this was God's plan. God brings his people to the desert. And what we learn here is this. They've been taken out of slavery in Egypt. But rather than turning to God, rather than trusting to God, they're still trusting in other things. Why does God bring them to the wilderness? Because he's saving them. He's liberating from all that they turn to other than him. In fact, in verse 3, their response, what do they say? It's very interesting. And the people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron and to God, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And then it's interesting how they look back now at their slavery. It says, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is interesting. They look back on their slavery with positive thoughts. Oh, the time. Do you remember, everyone, the time when we were back in Egypt? Oh, when I think of Egypt, I have just warm and fuzzy feelings. That was a good time, wasn't it? When we had food, good food, and we were all healthy and doing well. And I, it doesn't say this, but I can imagine them saying to each other, oh, you know, Pharaoh, yeah, he wasn't always the best. He was a little overbearing at times, but he gave us life. And the Egyptian gods provided for us. But Moses and Aaron and their God, here they brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. And what we find here is the language of addiction. The language of addiction. You see, you can free someone from physical slavery in an instant. They are free. But there is a process of freeing someone from spiritual enslavement. And that's what God's wanting to do. He's wanting to not just liberate them from physical slavery, he's wanting to liberate liberate them from the slavery of themselves for turning and trusting in any God other than Yahweh. And this is God's purpose. God's purpose in the wilderness is personal transformation. His purpose is, is to transform them. The wilderness was not just a place of transportation. It was a place of transformation. God has wanted to grow and work in their lives. And we see, we see God say this. And in verse 4, he says, the whole point of this all, being in the desert and, and finding manna, is that he says that I may test them. I may test them. Now, this is, this is a little surprising. When we think of tests, there are different kinds of tests. There's a test that a professor gives, and it's graduation weekend at Ohio State. 
And some of you, maybe not anyone here, uh, people who are graduating this year are probably celebrating somewhere. somewhere. And, and if you can remember the good feeling, if you experience graduation from college, the idea that there's no more tests. I mean, praise God. Some of us are weird. I actually kind of enjoyed the tests sometimes. I, I don't know. I was a little weird in that way. I didn't enjoy studying for it or doing any of the homework. I just thought I could show up and pass it which didn't always work, but, uh, but most of us, most, don't like tests, and the, the thought of being past that season of life is rewarding. But here's the thing, you never graduate from the test of life. You see, the test here is different than that of a professor. Uh, one commentator, Peter Enns, he puts it this way, speaking of the test of God. He says, God is not putting them in an unbearable situation because he is looking for an excuse to do them in. These are his people, after all, whom he has redeemed from Egypt. The desert tests are not trials for the Israelites to prove that they are somehow worthy of God. Such thinking misunderstands not only the Exodus narrative, but the theology of the Old Testament. The purpose of the desert tests are succinctly summarized in Exodus 20.20. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. God tests his people for their benefit, not for his own. You see, God's desire is to grow them, to transform them. The test we find here are more, not the test of a professor, but the test of a loving father. And a loving father uh, wants to train up his children. A loving father may want to train his child to learn how to deal with a broken down car. And so when a child might be a little younger, if the, if the tire goes flat, you may want to show your kid how to change it, show your daughter or your son how to change a flat tire. But eventually, you want them to do it on their own. And so you may be on a family road trip. And again, this like theme of cars breaking down seems to be on my mind. But you're on a family road trip. And after showing your child how to change a tire before, you want them to do it. You want to observe how they can do this. Because after all, one day they're going to be living, and you want them to be empowered. And now if the child doesn't want to, if the child grumbles, I can't change the tire. If the the child goes out and halfway does it, doesn't really fix it, the father probably isn't going to prove his point by driving on a broken down car. Father might go out and, and fix it and do it right. But the father loves his child, and if the child doesn't perform perfectly in the test, he doesn't say, all right, that's it. You're staying here. Everyone else get in the car. We're going on, and the child's left behind. No, that's not the kind of test that a father does. Because a child may fail, but the the love is still there. And we see God's people fail over and over and over and over again, and we see God's patient care and grace extended. God's testing his people by transforming them, not determining whether they're in or out. The wilderness is a place of transformation, not just transportation. Because God wants his people to work out their theology in everyday life. Imagine a a person who grew up in a home that was full of tests. 
And maybe not the test of a loving parent, but test of whether they measured up. And so they constantly heard from their parent of whether they measured up. And maybe when they didn't perform, they were left behind. Or maybe when the one time they got the B on that exam, it wasn't enough. And so as they grow older, they internalize this message that you're only worth loving when you perform. Now that person, when they encounter the gospel and they hear the good news of a God who graciously loves them, not based on their performance, but on his performance, they can hear that message. They can be here right now, this morning, and hear that message. And that can hit your mind and your heart and you can be overwhelmed with the gracious love of God. You can sing about it, rejoice in it, Go to bed tonight, excited for it. And then you wake up the next day. And when you hear that truth just one time, you just wake up on Monday morning and all of a sudden, all the previous voices, all the previous message of not measuring up, does that just go away? No, it doesn't. Life doesn't work that way. We still hear that message of not measuring up only being worth something when we perform. And what God does, because he graciously loves us, is he brings us to places we're utterly dependent on his gracious care. You see, God wants to work in his truth into our heart. And that's what the desert does. The desert is a place of transformation, not just transportation. Now, some of you... I might be here this morning, and you might be thinking right now, are you saying that God is the author of the pains in my life? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have a car break down, and that's annoying, but life is full of significantly worse troubles. Are we saying that God is the author of that pain? I want to just briefly give, speak to that and give a biblically honest response and answer. Is God the author of pain? First, in the Bible, we see God create the world. And in Genesis 1, God creates the world, and it doesn't record him creating a desert. We see God create the world, and there is goodness and beauty and wholeness and then sin enters into the situation and fractures everything. It fractures our relationship with God. It fractures our relationship with each other. It fractures our relationship with ourselves. It fractures our relationship with creation. God did not create the desert. Sin has brought it into existence. And yet God works to bring redemption in the deserts. Uh, Jesus, when his friend Lazarus dies... We don't see Jesus show up on the scene and say, everyone calm down, okay? Calm down, Jesus is here, no weeping, hush, watch God do his work. No, Jesus shows up on the scene and he weeps. God grieves the pain in your life. God weeps at the injustices in our world. But then God moves to redeem. God moves to liberate. God moves to care. We see Jesus do that to Lazarus. He brings them back to life. God creates the world to be good, and when there is not goodness, God desires to bring it. 
God is not the author of the pain in your life, but God will use the brokenness and pain to bring about redemption and wholeness. We see God's purpose in the wilderness. It's not a place of just transportation. It's a place of transformation. But God doesn't want to just leave us to our own devices. God also provides. We see God's provision in the wilderness. In verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. God doesn't leave us to our own provision and, and working it out ourselves. Now, notice, it's interesting. Just a few months prior, God's people were in Egypt, a fertile land. And yet when the plagues hit, this fertile land was now barren. And here, God's people are in a desert, a desolate land. But when God shows up, there's food. And here's a principle for life. The very best circumstances without God are barren, and the very worst circumstances with God are fruitful. You can be in the most perfect situations, have the perfect job, all the food you could imagine, living on the beach, whatever you envision glory being, you could have that. But if you do not have God, it's a desolate place. Or you could have the worst circumstances imaginable, be living in the desert, and if God is there, there can be joy and beauty. The best circumstance without God is a place of death. The worst circumstances with God can be a place of beauty and meaning. But God doesn't just, it's also interesting because God provides manna, but then he gives instructions on how to get it. In verse 16, it says, This is what the Lord God has commanded. Gather, gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, which I don't really know how much that is. People can guess, but they don't really know. An omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. God gives these instructions. It's interesting. Uh, gather only enough for a day. He also instructs them to gather and to share with others. And he, he instructs them to keep some of it for future generations so that they can remember God's work. Uh, question, why does God do it this way? You know, why, does, why doesn't God just instantaneously put the food in their stomach? You know, I'm hungry. Ah, oh, not anymore. God provided or how come when they go out of the tent, why, doesn't they, why don't they walk out? And the minute they're hungry, there's a plate floating right in front of them with, with food. You know, God could do that. Why doesn't he? Again, because God is teaching them. He's teaching them in the desert. He's preparing them for the future. He's teaching them how to find his provision, how to access his care. And so this morning... How do we find God's provision in the wildernesses that we find ourselves in? We know that God wants to transform us, but how do we access his care? I want to share a few ways as we close up this morning. First, God's provision in the wilderness. God provides his promises. We see the provision of God's truth, the provision of God's word. We need to think out his truth in our life. Deuteronomy 8 puts it this way, and Deuteronomy read with Exodus is, gives meaning and shape to what God's doing here. In verse 2, uh, God says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, 
testing you, again, this transforming you to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see Moses communicating the point of God's work here, that man would know that he doesn't live by bread alone. There was another man who was in the wilderness, Jesus. And Satan entered uh, into his story at that place and said, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus quotes this right here. He quotes this from Deuteronomy. He says, man was not made to live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. What he's saying here is this. What can sustain us in the wilderness? It's not just food. Food will come and go. What sustains us in the deserts of life are the promises of God, the truth of who he is and what he offers. What truths of God do you need to think out in the desert? Here's a few examples. Uh, What promises of God? You need to think out that you are a beloved child of God. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's saying your commandment to love others is an overflow of God's love for you. You are a beloved child. Think that out. What voices do you hear that pronounce identity on you? When you hear the voice that says you're only lovable when you do something for others, hear the voice of God that says you are loved not on, based on your work, but on Christ's work on your behalf. A beloved child in the desert of aloneness, in the wilderness of isolation. Remember, you are beloved. You are loved by God. Also, we can think out the hope of future resurrection. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Think that out. Think out the hope of future resurrection. In the wildernesses of life, when we feel defined by our problems, think out that there is a glorious future. You know, I found it ironic and interesting in conversations sometimes with people who don't believe in God. And their thought is, you know, they think too much. They're too rational to believe in God. It's the idea of looking at a universe where there's no God. Imagine thinking that out in your life. Thinking out that there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no life after death. There's no real ultimate justice or goodness in the world. It's a cold and dark planet. Get what you can and survive. No one can think out that in life. Because when we experience life, we find love and meaning And there is a part of our soul that longs for goodness, longs for a future. If you don't believe in God, you really can't think that out in your everyday life. When you do believe in God and you trust in his future resurrection, you have the opportunity to think that out in the struggles 
and pains of life. God provides the hope of future resurrection. He also provides his presence. In Deuteronomy 31, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. In the desert, God is there. God provides himself. We see God's presence. And this is the second provision that God provides, the provision of his presence. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, says, give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus would have had the manna in mind, the daily walk, daily intimacy with God, depending on him, trusting in him, being with him. In the desert, God invites us to an intimate walk of faith, an intimate way of not just knowing about God, but knowing him as he is there. And one of the things I found is that people, that when you're in the desert, it will drive you, it will change you. It will either change you and push you away from God, or it will drive you and push you toward him. You never stay the same in the desert. You're always transformed. You can move toward anger, toward self-reliance, or toward meaning and beauty and love, toward God. And when we know people, often the people who have the most intimate walk with God are people who experience immense suffering. Immense suffering. I found this growing up uh, with my mom. Uh, many of you know, if you're familiar with uh, my mom's story, and I've shared it a number of times, my mom had severe physical pain and limitations. She had severe rheumatoid arthritis and Parkinson's, and, and there would be times uh, a number of years ago when she would call me on the phone, and she would say, well, Jay, will you talk to me? I, I can't really walk right now. And in those moments, I never heard her complain. I mean, I'm sure she did from time to time, but she wouldn't complain. In the moment of pain where she couldn't walk, she would talk about God. She would recount his goodness, his closeness, his intimacy in the pain. And such a lesson for life. Though someone may not be able to walk physically, they can walk spiritually. That you can experience incredible joy, not apart from the desert, not apart from the pains of life, not apart from the disappointments, but actually in them. It's in the desert that the presence of God can be most fully experienced. So in the desert of your life, are you looking for God? Are you craving him? Or do you just go to God for what you want him to provide? The opportunity to see see God as an end, not just a means. That he is the one that can sustain us. And the opportunity to walk intimately with him is a gift. We see the provision of God's promises, the provision of God himself and his presence, but also the provision of God's people. In the text, they are to share the food that they gather, to gather only what they need and to share with others, and to even save some for future generations that other people would know the faithfulness of God. In the deserts of life, we need each other. In the world, 
we're prone to isolation, to thinking we must walk alone. And when we're in a desert and we see someone else on vacation, we, we, we just wish ill on their life. If only my life was like their life. And we live in this constant state of comparison. And the church, God, roots us in a community where we walk together, not just in the good times, but especially when it's hard. You know, looking back on the challenges in my life, I found the most refreshing way that God can love is with people. People who don't just pronounce God's promises right there. In fact, when we're in the midst of pain, in the midst of the desert, that's sometimes the last thing we want to hear. When you're dealing with the aftershock of grief, someone to say, hey, you know, God, there's future resurrection for you. God works all things out for good for those who love him. Don't grieve. It'll all be okay. And, and oftentimes when we say those statements to people in the midst of pain, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do away with their pain. And it often just makes it worse. Because when you're in the midst of a struggle, of pain, there's nothing someone can say in that moment to really make it go away. But what they can do is be there. To just be present. And in the midst of the tears of life, that is often what we need. It's just someone who's there. And over the course of time, when our heart may be at a place to receive and be reminded of God's promises, that's so vital too. And that is the way that we love each other in a, as a community. To be present when people are hurting and to speak the goodness of God's care in the right moment. You know, one way that God provides for each of us personally is by putting us in a place where we can be loved socially. Are you open to God's care through other people? And are you open to providing care to others? And that's how we close. God's provision. He provides his promises. He provides his presence. He provides people. And lastly and interestingly, he provides the opportunity to engage in his purposes. You know, Jesus at one point was ministering to a woman at a well, a woman who is in a desert. And his disciples find him, and he hasn't eaten. And they go to him, they're like, hey, Jesus, you need some food. And he has this statement. We looked at this a, a, a few weeks ago, and we're going to close again with this here. He says this. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That Jesus' desire, he's sustained by the opportunity to bring God's redeeming purposes into the world. That God doesn't want to just minister to us, but he wants to minister through us. And that's good news. Oftentimes, we don't understand what God is doing in the desert, but on the other side, we see the unique and new opportunity to love others who are in the desert themselves. We live in a world where things are constantly breaking down. Cars breaking down. Relationships breaking down. Bodies breaking down. We live in a world where things are breaking down. 
people are hungry. They have bought into the zombie narrative that the pains and problems of life are just always right around the corner. They're chasing us, and we can never escape. God has placed us there to minister to people, not on the other side of the desert, saying, hey, come on, you can make it, run, you can do this. But by entering into the desert, to give them a hand, and to speak and model the truth of the liberating work of God. What a privilege that God ministers through our wounds, that we can bring healing to those in need. Where are you this morning? Are you in a desert? Do you see the way that God wants to transform you to bring weightiness to you? Do you see God's provision? His word, his presence, his people, and then the joy of extending his redeeming work to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your provision in the pains of life. Thank you for your word. May we be nourished by its truth. Thank you for your presence. May we be sustained by your abiding kindness in times of trouble. Thank you for your people. May we find comfort in the challenges of life. Thank you for inviting us to bring healing to others. May we find purpose in the pain and be reminded that the desert times are not in vain. Thank you, God. Amen.